Just as summer is coming to an end, our sermon series also on the Gospel of John is coming to an end. It, we are in the concluding weeks and we hope these last two will bear a mark of summertime. Today's sermon takes place in a garden and next week's sermon takes place at a beach. So we are celebrating summer in these last two weeks here at Kenilworth Union Church as we consider the Gospel of John. But first, to get an image in your mind, what do you picture when you picture a garden? What do you imagine? What is in your mind's eye? Is it your own backyard pulsing with cicadas and the blink of lightning bugs? The peaceful evening outside with after dinner with a glass of wine when the street noise is barely audible and the planes buzz past unnoticed? Or do you think of long afternoons spent meandering through the botanic garden or the Lurry Garden or the Lincoln Park Conservatory, drinking in the manicured hedgerows and the roses and the flourishing fountains and the blossoms unbound? When you think of a garden, do you think of a place that you went to with a friend a hundred years ago, it seems, or a place that you go to often? a place nearby where people might expect you to be any evening late in the summer. Today's story takes place in a garden right after dinner, and the disciples are there with full bellies and full hearts because Jesus has just said goodbye. And it is, as we call it, his last supper. He knows he's about to die, and he's been telling his disciples this all along, but whether they've understood this or not is another question. So after supper, Jesus goes to a garden just beyond the walls of Jerusalem proper to wait. And you might be familiar with this scene. You might wonder why Jesus in this version isn't praying for God to take this cup from him. And you might notice how Jesus doesn't this time chide his disciples for falling asleep while he's praying. This is a completely different gospel. This is the gospel of John where Jesus is courageous and in control. So let us listen for God in the midst of this reading from the gospel of John. After Jesus said these things, Jesus went out with his disciples and crossed over to the other side of the Kidron Valley. He and his disciples entered a garden there. Judas, Jesus' betrayer, also knew the place because Jesus often gathered there with his disciples. Judas brought a company of soldiers and some guards from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him, so he went out and asked, Who are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. And so Jesus said to them, I am. When he said, I am, everyone shrank back and fell to the ground. And Jesus asked them again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered again, I told you, I am. If you are looking for me, then let these people go. This was said so that the word that Jesus had spoken might be fulfilled. I didn't lose anyone of those whom you gave me. 
But Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup my father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the guards from the Jewish leaders took Jesus into custody. They bound him and led him first to Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it was better for one person to die for the people. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, guide us. Holy Spirit, lead us. Holy Spirit, hover over us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. School is about to begin. Tomorrow for some, last week for others, and still yet a week from now for a lucky few. And as our preschool teachers here at Kenilworth Union Church have emerged from the far reaches of summer, they returned to church in full force this past week, putting their rooms together, adding the names of their new students to the cubbies and to the desks, bonding again with their teaching teams and reviewing the plan for the year. So did you know that our preschool students learn the letter M first? In the beginning weeks of September, they won't begin in the beginning with A, but instead they will begin with a different sort of beginning, with the letter M. And now, I'm just as surprised as you are about this, but I was even more delighted when I learned why. The letter M admittedly is a really great letter, of course. Mighty and metrical, standing like matching mountains side by side. You can't have the book if you give a moose a muffin without the letter M, and you definitely can't have mom without the letter M, and these are important things for preschoolers. But that's not why they learn M first. No, it's actually more grounded than that. In these first few weeks of school, when putting the cap back on the marker is still a very difficult task, let alone finding your way to the bathroom, and being away from home is still a struggle, preschoolers need something familiar. They need something close. They need the letter M and the word me. They begin not with some sort of self-centered me, some egocentric me, some self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-involved me, but with the familiar, the mundane me, the recognizable me, unceremonious, ordinary, everyday me. Only then, once they have shared the most basic of what they know about themselves with their class, can they begin to move outward, talking about family and friend and neighbor and the world. There is so much that is new and, and unfamiliar with preschool. New friends, unfamiliar classrooms, new teachers, unfamiliar expectations. Starting with the letter M and the word me can turn what looks like chaos 
the unfamiliar, unexplored depths of the colorful classroom into an ordered rhythm, something familiar and beloved. We too, I think, need to start with the letter M, so to speak. We begin with things that are familiar. Worship begins every week with the same song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Football games begin with the same song. Oh, say can you see? The day begins with coffee. The morning begins with sunrise. The evening ends with sunset. We seek an ordinary rhythm to our lives, something familiar and beloved, so that we can and must eventually turn towards the most the more difficult less ordered chaos of life the unforeseen accident or the unanticipated medical bill the unpredicted diagnosis or the sudden move of a family member the abrupt change or the unannounced earth-shattering argument with a friend life bears the mark of chaos and so we begin with the letter m with the familiar. Today's gospel lesson also begins with some things that are familiar. It's not so hard to imagine Jesus and his disciples taking an after-dinner walk, and it's not so hard to imagine Jesus and his disciples walking around in a garden, and it's not so hard to imagine Jesus and his disciples having a regular hangout, a favorite spot, a meeting place, a refuge, a home away from home a place where all the disciples, Judas included, might know to gather after dinner. And at this point in the story, if you've been reading along in the Gospel of John, you've heard Jesus say over and over again that his death is approaching. It was expected and anticipated, looming on the horizon. So even this arrest in the garden shouldn't be a surprise. The whole story, the whole gospel story has pointed in this direction. And so we, as readers of the story, have been prepared to see it unfold. Now, don't get me wrong. The surprises in this story have been delightful, too. I was surprised to learn that the cohort of Roman soldiers who come to arrest Jesus in the gospel of, Lo- of John are upwards of 600 men quite the use of force by Judas and all those in power to come and arrest this one nonviolent man. And I was stunned that Jesus actually could topple the whole cohort with just two words, I am. Those two words, I am, point back to the ancient beloved story of Moses at the burning bush where God declares, I am who I am. And thus, Jesus is saying to those who have come to arrest him, I am just as God is. And I was surprised by the way this story's rhythm takes us all the way to the end of the story. Judas hands Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities hand Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate hands Jesus over to the soldiers. And finally, Jesus hands his spirit over to God. This arrest narrative takes us all the way to Good Friday's scandalous, cruel, terrifying, frantic, frightening end. 
And finally, I was surprised by the lyric poetry, not just of that handing over, but also the poetry of an unfolding garden theme in the Gospel of John. Jesus was arrested in the garden. Jesus was crucified in a garden. Jesus was buried in a garden. Jesus was witnessed anew in a garden. You see, when I think of a garden, or at least lately when I've been thinking of gardens, I've been thinking of a particular garden. It's not actually a garden I've been to. It's a garden that belongs to a family I met a while back that owns a garden store. A family that has been on my mind as of late. I met them on a mission trip. We'll call them John and Karen and their son Brian for the sake of their own privacy. My church was staying at the same mission house as their churches and our mission projects overlapped. John and Karen and Brian had gone on mission trips to the same mission house for many years. And this particular year, the year that I met them, would be their last mission trip, at least for a while. John and Brian wanted to take one more trip, and they thought it might be important for all of them. You see, Karen had been diagnosed with a form of early-onset Alzheimer's, and while she was still in those high-functioning days, they wanted to travel with her. She could travel, she could be with family, she could be with the church family that she loved. And so they went. And through them, I learned a new kind of love. Love expressed by Karen, sweeping and sweeping and sweeping at the concrete construction site. Her smile, friendly, freckled face, still, uh, still showing love and grace. And I saw love expressed by John and Brian, caring for Karen as she navigated the familiar and yet increasingly unfamiliar landscape of a place she'd been to a dozen times. Lo and love expressed by the women of the church who tended to Karen at night in the women's bunkhouse. Meeting Karen and John and their son Brian was meeting love embodied. When I think of a garden, I think of John and Karen and their son Brian because when they went home after that mission trip to face the long journey of Alzheimer's, they went home to their garden, a garden shop that John and Karen had started together. Customers of their shop had become like family to them. They cared deeply for the community that was built there, and so in those, as those days went by, Karen could be by John's side at the garden shop because it was familiar, because it was mundane and recognizable and unceremonious and ordinary, because it wrapped Karen up in routine. Within the chaos of a disease that erases even the most familiar, the garden shop could, for a while longer, be a place of home. When Jesus was in the garden, he turned courageously to those who had come to arrest him. Jesus knew they were coming, but Jesus turned courageously nonetheless for the sake of the least and the lost and the little and the belittled. Jesus turned courageously not just for himself or for the sake of some cosmic sense of justice, but for the sake of those with whom he had walked the Samaritan woman and the woman caught in adultery, the tax collector and the sinner. Jesus walked 
out in courage to face those who had come to arrest him. Jesus walked out in courage. One author says that faith approximates courage. Courage at that trembling margin between chaos and order where both God and the world are made known. John and Karen and their son Brian have faith, a faith that approximates courage. Courage in the face of unordered chaos of Alzheimer's that undoes and erases even what is most familiar. And fresh in that uncertainty, they found refuge in a garden shop that could, for however long, be a place of home. Our preschoolers, too, have faith, a faith that approximates courage. Courage in the face of the unordered chaos of all things new, classmates and teachers, learning and community. And fresh in that uncertainty, they will find refuge in the letter M and the word me and the comfort of beginning with what is most natural and innocently familiar. Our world has faith, a faith that approximates courage, courage in the face of unordered chaos. Louisiana found courage in the face of the floods. Italy found courage in the face of the earthquake. Syria finds courage daily in its unending civil war. What is it for you? Does your faith approximate courage even today? Have you unearthed a tangible courage in the face of unordered chaos? Life bears this mark, the mark of chaos, and so we begin with the letter M, with the familiar. And in doing so, we receive again the gift of faith in the form of courage approximated. May it be so. Let us pray. God in faith. With courage approximated, we give our lives into the unordered chaos, bravely facing what unfolds before us. Hold us as we lift our lives before you in the safe silence of this sanctuary. Amen.